Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Dayson Digest. I'm Ray Perez, one of the third-year infectious disease fellows working with the Dayson Group, um, and happy to be back on the show. Today, I have a very exciting guest joining us. This is our newest Dayson liaison, so get ready to be seeing her out there on the road. Um, it's Dr. Jeanette Bouchard. Hi, Jeanette. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, Ray. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Dr. Bouchard, um, it was someone we're really excited to have on the team. She did her first year residency at UPMC in Pittsburgh, and then her PGY2 infectious diseases residency and fellowship training at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. Uh, then she did a few years at a community hospital uh, here nearby in Raleigh, um, but now she's made her way back to Columbia, South Carolina, and it started with us as a Dayson liaison. So for all of our partner sites uh, a little bit further south, get ready to be spending some time with Jeanette. How's the transition going so far, Jeanette? It's going good. I'm working um, with some of the other liaison, get a hold of some of the hospitals that I'll be working with and um, get introduced to them. Uh, nothing like moving down to South Carolina in the middle of this heat wave. So that's been exciting, but um, we've made it through. <laughs> well, at least we're not in Phoenix. Goodness gracious. Yes, that's true. Uh, well, so Jeanette, you brought a really fun article for us to discuss this week. Um, so the title of the article, and you can find the link in the show notes to be able to follow along, is Epidemiology of Gram-Negative Bloodstream Infections in the United States. Results from a cohort of 24 hospitals. This was published in Open Forum Infectious Diseases just this July 2023 um, and features a lot of big names you may recognize on the paper, including Emily Spivak, Prinita Tama, Priya Nori, and others. So to set the stage a little bit, you know, many changes have been made to recommendations for the management of gram-negative bacteremia. Uh, you know, I know even in our stewardship group, we've been pushing the evidence for shorter seven-day courses in patients with uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia. Um, we've also had more comfort with using oral therapy for uh, uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia. But on the other hand, there are still a lot of cases of complicated gram-negative bacteremia out there. There's rising gram-negative resistance. Um, there are uh, immunocompromised populations and other special populations that were worried about. And so this study was really trying to look at what's happening out there in the real world. It takes advantage of this really cool new group and collaborative called the Antibiotic Stewardship Implementation Collaborative, or ASIC. This is a group of stewardship leaders throughout the country who are sharing data to inform practice. It is a collaborative of 16 academic centers, four community hospitals, and four VA hospitals across the country. Most of these hospitals are in the Northeast, but they really do spread from East to West across the country. And as I mentioned, this, this really features some of our thought leaders in antibiotic stewardship, including Sarah Cosgrove, Emily Spivak, and others. We'll note that for a little bit of context that these are all pretty fairly well-funded stewardship programs. So the, I mentioned that the collaborative has a mean FTE of 1.3 pharmacists and 0.6 physicians in support for their stewardship programs. Um, but it's going to be, I think, a really exciting resource. And I, I really look forward to seeing the other data that this group is going to be coming out with. Um, this was a new one for me. Uh, Jeanette, were you familiar with this group before? I was not familiar with the group as like a formal entity before. I, I know, obviously, of the work of like Emily and Pranita and things like that. But um, I had not recognized that they had grown 
formed like a formal group to start doing uh, more research in the stewardship arena and bringing more collaborative collaborative practice across the United States. So um, it was exciting to hear as another group kind of taking this on. I know um, there's a lot of groups growing that are similar to this um, and making their way in. So it's nice to see a publication from them. Yeah, really looking forward to what these guys are going to be putting out in the, the years to come. Um, so what did they do this time? So one of their stated goals when they formed this collaborative was to establish a contemporary understanding of gram-negative bloodstream infections in the United States to help inform some empiric antibiotic selection. So this is a multi-center retrospective cohort study using data from the ASIC collaborative. Uh, the cohort included patients with unique episodes of gram-negative bacteremia aged 18 or greater from their 24 hospitals. The study took place from January to December of 2019. And as described previously, a little, a few limitations in this cohort of hospitals. Um, they are really no Southern sites. The vast majority of the hospitals come from the Northeast with some in the Midwest and only one truly out in the West of the United States. Most of these were academic centers. Uh, most of them were urban, and really none of them were classified as rural. They collected a ton of information about clinical outcomes, you know, things like uh, was source control achieved, uh, mortality, and other data sets. But it sounds like those clinical outcomes will be more the focus of a future publication. And so what this paper focused on was really on the microbiology. They took the microbiologic results from each of these episodes of gram-negative bacteremia and also looked at their resistance patterns. So their primary outcome in this study was to describe the microbiology and antibiotic susceptibility patterns of gram-negative bloodstream infection isolates from the ASIC sites across the United States. A few important definitions to keep in mind as we're discussing this data. So um, what did they use to define ESBL, extended beta, extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing organisms? Um, their cutoffs there were if they did molecular testing, which detected a CTXM mutation, or a ceftriaxone MIC greater than two for enterobacterales. Um, they used the 2021 CLSI standards wherever they could. Um, granted, those standards were after the time of the study, so there was a little bit of difficulty retrospectively implementing the new fluoroquinolone susceptibilities in particular, since not all sites had devices that could go to that new revised MIC cutoff of 0.25 micrograms per milliliter, but they uh, adjusted the data the best they could. So before we go on and talk about the results, you know, Jeanette, I'm curious to get your opinion on, you know, how do you think about the relevance of a study like this to our ASON network hospitals, you know, I think it's always challenging when you get these studies, which are mostly done in academic centers that are large, focused in the Northeast. And here we are trying to apply it to our network of a lot of community hospitals in the South, you know, if the idea is to create an antibiogram that you can use for empiric guidance on a broader scale, um, you know, is this something that how seriously should our partner sites be taking these tables? Um, so this is really interesting and kind of the first thing I thought about when I was reading through this um, paper. Uh, so it's very important to pay attention to the sites that they're they're referencing and pulling their data from. Um, I, I will say that I don't think it has a whole lot of validity towards our group here um, that we work with with Dason. It is a completely different set of hospitals. Um, they have a lot of large academic medical centers. So looking at um, the table that kind of describes some of the hospitals that they we're pulling data from, you can see how many beds 
which is just one of the big things that sets these hospital apart um, that these different hospitals had. And comparatively to a lot of our DASON network hospitals, I mean, they, they are two to three times the size. We're working here in DASON with a smaller community feel um, comparatively to these larger and even if you look at some of their smaller hospital group, they, they're VAs. Um, and so they're also urban VAs. So they're a complete set of population, even from our community hospitals that we work with here. Um, not to say that this data wouldn't be and, um, informative to a different population, but um, I think with our DASON group, we have to be careful extending the results and the um, key points here in this article to our hospitals. Yeah, still think it's some interesting points from learning, but definitely I would agree. I would have a little bit of caution really thinking about this data and and how, you know I don't know if this would what what this would be what I would use to guide my empiric therapy at some of our network sites for sure. So the overall structure of this article um, and the the main outcome that they were trying to go for, I do think um, could be applied to the Dayson network. Um, and perhaps given a different population pull that they would pull from, um, it could be useful in terms of empiric therapy, um, especially in those smaller community hospitals that aren't able to make such nitty gritty antibiograms that those larger academics are, a lot, are able to make. Um, South Carolina did something kind of interesting where they have a statewide program where they did an antibiogram for outpatient centers in South Carolina. And I really think um, doing antibiograms in those types of settings are very useful because those are areas that they don't have the infrastructure to be providing their own antibiogram. And a lot of times the empiric therapy is based off of just what physicians know from guidelines and not necessarily guided by local data. And so this kind of point of this article is probably the biggest take home. Um, and we'll get into some of the results and how we can work towards maybe applying them to areas where they would have even more benefits um, than these larger academic medical centers. Great. Well, those are all excellent points. And so why don't, let's go ahead and drill down into some of these results. There's a ton of stuff they get into in this paper. And again, I encourage everyone to check out the article in the show notes, but just to highlight some of the big takeaways. So pretty big study. They were able to identify 4,851 bacterial isolates from 3,700 unique patients uh, in this, this cohort. They did a good job of being a cohort that was fairly representative of the U.S. population with 22% uh, Black patients actually, you know, overrepresented, thinking about the national uh, prevalence, 12% Hispanic patients, um, and 34% was moderate uh, to severe immunocompromise. They defined that as patients with active chemotherapy, solid or liquid transplant, or HIV with a CD4 less than 200, and high-dose steroids. Um, so I think this gets a little bit to your point you were making about these academic centers that were larger and with sicker patients. Uh, interesting to see they had a lot of those patients in the immunocompromised category. The infections that they found were mostly urinary sores, so 47.9% of these gram-negative bacteremias being attributable to urinary sources, followed by intra-abdominal with 14% and hepatobiliary with 11%. And they were able to achieve source control in as many as 84% of those infections. And as I mentioned, patient outcomes were not really the focus of this paper, but I do think it is worth mentioning uh, the limited information they did give us because they did they reported a 90-day mortality of 19% and a 30-day mortality of 14%. And so it was interesting just to see just how high 
those numbers still are. It was much higher than I expected for a disease that, you know, we as infectious disease consultants aren't always getting involved in and saying like, oh, it's just a gram-negative bacteremia. We may not have to be as worried. Um, I, that really stood out to me. Um, did you find that notable as well, Jeanette? Yeah, that that definitely was notable to me. And I, I think one of another key indicator of this is a different population than we would see here within the JSON network um, with such a high ICU rate and pit bacteremia score and that mortality reflects that. And so um, it's definitely interesting to see how many complicated gram-negative infections they, they brought into this. Yeah, I mean, you, you bring that up. 32% of the patients in this study had an ICU stay, and certainly a lot higher than the ones I typically think about when I'm considering gram-negative bacteremia. So a lot more complicated cases that we were seeing in this study. In terms of which bacteria they were seeing, so E. coli was by far the most common isolate, representing 51% of cases, followed by Klebsiella pneumoniae at 17%, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa at 8.7%. Looking overall at some of the resistance patterns of these isolates, 15.7% of the isolates um, were classified as ESBL. And when you look specifically at uh, Enterobacter coeciae, uh, Klebsiella orogenes, and Citrobacter ferundii, um, are organisms which were most worried about uh, inducible AMP-C resistance, they had 24% were had that ceftriaxone MIC greater than two and would have them labeled as an ESBL producer. I found that number a little bit higher than I expected, I have to admit. Um, uh, what did you think, Jeanette? Did that seem like kind of what was in your brain or uh, a little bit surprising to you? It was a little bit higher, but as I kind of looked around the literature, depending on what area of the country you're in, um, it, it, it does, it is a little bit consistent with that. Um, I do think they're missing a large portion of the U.S. in this um, hospital population that would probably even drive that ESBL rate up, which is the South, um, mm -hmm. the Texas, like Midwest South area, I think has a lot of ESBL as well, just from the patient population that's there. And so um, it'd be interesting if they got more corners of the United States to see how that would either even out or drive it higher. One thing that I thought was particularly interesting when they were looking at ESBL rates was they saw that white patients had a statistically significant increase in ESBL proportion compared to non-white patients. So in white patients, they saw 14.6% of the isolates were labeled as ESBL, while uh, in non-white patients, only 9.5% of the isolates uh, were labeled as ESBL. Um, you know, I know there's a lot more work that is recently coming out looking at racial differences in patient outcomes and in receipt of antibiotics in particular. And I think this is a, a really interesting signal for them to be defining, you know, are white patients receiving antibiotics at higher rates that um, could be attributing to this? Hard to say for just this, but um, I found that quite interesting. Yeah, and they, they said they were going to be looking into that further. So it'll be interesting to see um, what else they do with that particular area of research. Um, I certainly would be interested to see if um, the white population would be getting more exposed to antibiotics earlier, like in childhood or whatnot, um, that's causing the, that drive in ESBL rate. And then thinking about some of the scariest bugs um, that we have to worry about are uh, carbapenem-resistant isolates. We saw that 1.8% of the bacteria they identified were 
resistant to carbapenems. Um, there were 90 isolates total, and of those 90, only 30% were confirmed to produce a carbapenemase molecularly or with phenotypic testing. Admittedly, a lot of the sites did not necessarily have the capability to do this degree of molecular phenotypic testing. So there's a amount of missing data there. Interesting to think about as we're trying to come up with empiric antibiotics to give, gosh, with so many of them uh, being not carbapenemase producing, it does make it a little bit harder to predict what's going to be your best agent um, other than really trying to put in the work for that antibiogram, and which is tough with these rare organisms. Yeah, it is. And I, I definitely think that this, in general, carbapenem resistance across different organisms um, in the non-carbapenemase producing organisms specifically is, is a big thought process that we all go through in the inpatient side with IDs you know, how do you, how do I predict what I'm going to treat if I don't know if there's like a gene involved? Um, and so CTXM and in the blood cultures has made it pretty easy to immediately go to a carbapenem because you know what it's going to kick out. But if you have a carbapenem resistance, you don't really know how to treat it until you get those susceptibilities. And so it does make it difficult to treat fast with the most appropriate agent up front. You know, I think a challenge we're going to continually have to, to face in the coming years. Um, a few other just general trends that um, showed up in their antibiogram. Unfortunately, an antibiogram is not something that lends itself well to an auditorium medium such as this, this one. And so again, I encourage everyone to take a look at this table um, by clicking the link in the show notes. But you know, a few things that stood out to me, ceftriaxone susceptibility for E. coli and Klebsiella pneumo falling into the low 80%. I mean, that that really fits with the overall ESBL rate we talked about earlier, but still does make you think a little bit about when you just see an E. coli, is ceftriaxone still your, your frontline agent for patients who are really sick? Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole looking pretty poor towards those agents as well with susceptibilities in the 60s and 70s, and fluoroquinolones not looking much better. Um, and if anything, those susceptibilities were overestimated given the recent changes to the CLSI uh, breakpoints. Um, so some slightly concerning trends, at least in these larger academic centers for what's going on with antibiotic resistance. Any other big takeaways that you had from these antibiograms, Jeanette? Um, no, they were definitely interesting to look at. Um, like you said, very hard to sum up the, the two large antibiograms that were in there, but I liked how they broke it down. But yeah, I think you bring a big point of the site-specific antibiograms are a really interesting thing that they did with this study. Um, and something we certainly do um, at our institution is we separate out uh, a urine antibiogram with the focus there being really including a lot of those outpatient specimens to help guide, to help our outpatient and primary care providers really guide some of the UTI treatment as, a, as an outpatient, as because that susceptibility does tend to be quite different. Less significant differences than I would have expected, honestly, between the different sites that they looked at. Um, so perhaps more thinking about that inpatient versus outpatient is going to get you more bang for your buck than separating out your inpatient sites. Um, but still, I thought an interesting concept that can help you step up your antibiogram to the next level. So we've already talked about a lot of really interesting points about the study, but a few other things that I wanted to touch on. So, you know, this whole study was conducted from January to December of 2019 all pre-pandemic, and the CDC put out that whole COVID-19 special report, which raised concerns about rising resistance post-COVID, and that kind of brings this whole 
antibiogram into question a little bit. Do you, Jeanette, what do you think? Would you consider these data still being relevant and timely? And like, what a challenge that always is with antibiograms is, can we turn them around fast enough for them to keep their relevance? Yeah, I, I do think that there's probably been a few changes in the last four years. Um, I, if you think about traditional antibiograms that we do in patients, it, we try to get them out yearly um, as much as we can. And so I think turning around this much data yearly might be very difficult, but um, maybe doing it every three years or so, especially when there's an instant, like a large <laughs> pandemic that drove antimicrobial use up significantly would be a good time to kind of reevaluate afterwards. I could only imagine that azithromycin rates um, maybe have increased in the, in the last few years based off of how we were using it during the pandemic. No, I think it will be a very interesting thing as this group continues putting out work to see how things change in the in the post-pandemic setting, for sure. Um, one other thing I thought I would make a plug for, you know, that we did, we did mention that higher ceftriaxone resistance in those organisms that were particularly worried about inducible AMC resistance, so our Enterobacter cloacae, our Klebsiella erogenes, and our C. ferundii. I think it's good to make a plug for I feel like I still see people throwing around space and spice organisms, but we've really tried to rebrand with heck yes as our organisms of interest for those uh, bugs, particularly with the taxonomist changing things up on us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, heck yes is definitely um, the acronym to keep in mind these days, especially with the, the newer paper that has, has just come out about poor outcomes specifically in these eight these organisms when you're using ceftriaxone. So um, I really like that they even touched on that to begin with and looked at potential high-level AMPC production based off of their MICs. And so that was a very interesting part. Yeah. And you know, I think that in com combination with just the higher ESBL rates, it really does make you think with ceftriaxone susceptibility dropping to 82% overall for E. coli, um, you know, do you start moving? I hate to say it, but it really makes you think about the importance of looking at your own local antibiogram and getting a sense of those patterns of when do you need to start considering is ceftriaxone still the right empiric agent um, for certain infections or when might you need to go a little bit broader to account for those? Yeah, I, it's definitely something that has come up in my own practice and something um, that I kind of waffle between when making, you know, empiric recommendation order sets or things of that nature. Um, what in a recent project that I've done um, at the previous institution was tailor our empiric recommendations based off of whether there's a CTXM signified in the in the BCID. And so um, you can kind of dig deeper into the data to see if you need to be recommending cefepime all the time if an E. coli is in the blood, um, or if there's indicators where you can kind of use ceftriaxone and feel safe with it. And so um, with my particular project, we saw that every single E. coli in the blood that was resistant to ceftriaxone did have CTXM flagged. And so we felt fairly safe um, at that particular institution that we could go ahead and make the recommendation of ceftriaxone without the resistant gene. Um, and then if CTXM obviously was there making a different recommendation, but digging deeper into your own institutional data is key here. Yeah, and I think that's a really cool project you bring up and speaks a lot to the potential that we might have uh, for using these 
molecular platforms. Um, so exciting technologies on the horizon as well. Um, so the last thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, the idea of kind of making these larger national antibiograms, you know, I, I guess do all the work I do in, in infection prevention and antibiotic stewardship and thinking about SIRS and SARS, it's sort of almost with the new uh, NHSN requirements for mandated reporting of antimicrobial resistance in the AUR module, there's potential there for you to almost have like a, a benchmark for your local resistance rate and thinking, gosh, should I be worried that if I have way more resistance than some of my other peer institutions? Do you, this is sort of very far off and a little pie in the sky, but do you think that's a direction we might eventually get to? I definitely think that's the direction we're trying to head to, um, especially with our AR reporting um, and with the, the most recent microbiology requirements by the College of Pathology, I think this is where we're headed. Um, do I think it's a five-year goal that we're going to have everyone on the same kind of pathway and getting an antibiogram that we're able to differentiate by territory um, or area of the United States? No, I think it's probably more closer to like the 10-year out plan, but I definitely think we're heading that way. Um, and I like the idea of it. I think I think it'll be very useful, especially to the hospitals that don't have the infrastructure to have someone dig into their data. I think it'll it'll definitely help give more of a perspective on their specific resistance in their institution compared to similar institutions and how they can help slow resistance down or deal with the resistance that will show up and how to make empiric choices with that. Awesome. Well, all really exciting work. Anything else that you think you wanted to mention or make sure that we talked about for our network hospitals, Jeanette? Um, no, I think that's that's all I have. Um, this was a, a pretty exciting study just in terms of the structure of it and um, kind of gets the creative research juices flowing to see what else we can do to help some of the hospitals that probably need it the most. Absolutely. Really excited to see what comes out from this group in the future. And when it does, uh, be sure to tune back in. I'm sure we'll be talking about it. Uh, well, Jeanette, thanks so much for your time and joining us. Uh, and to everyone out there, uh, we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. Thanks. And until next time. 